You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right, everyone, take your seats, which it looks like you're already doing. My name is Kim, and I'm here to do a reading this morning. I would invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible apps and turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're starting at verse 11 and reading through to 26. Today we're continuing on our series called Behold, and um, Pastor John is going to be sharing the message with us. Um, Out of respect for God's word, I invite you to stand if you are able as I read from Matthew 27, 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas, So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The word of God, you can be seated. Amen. Let me just pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you today for your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, the gospels and their, um, yeah, their history that they've given to us today. Lord, we pray in this moment that you would come alive as we study the scriptures, uh, that, that we would see uh, the words um, alive in our, in our hearts. Lord, that they would, we would have eyes that um, understand your ways and your kingdom. I want to know more from you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in this time as I preach. Uh, God, did you speak to me and to each one of us? You, we invite you here. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, everyone. Uh, I know some of you, some of you are old friends. Um, some of you I haven't met before, but I'm glad that you would uh, sit, sit with me and go through this text together. It's a, it's a very well-loved passage and probably familiar to many of you. The scriptures tell of a long time ago when there was a garden. And in that garden, uh, there were two people. Okay, there was a man and a woman. And they walked with God daily in the garden. So what, became, what came between them was not what we would expect. What came between them, between God and the man and the woman, was envy. The people envied the place of power that God had, knowing good and evil, and they wanted it for themselves, even if it meant being rid of their friend and their maker. And so the enemy, we know him, right? The enemy enchanted them with the first of many sins, envy. Adam and Eve wanted to be rid of their maker. And here in our text today, Jesus faces the same dang thing. Jesus faces his old foe in envy once again. And what I want you to see is how Jesus acts. As you think about this text today, I want you to see how Jesus acts when he is faced with envy-filled people. Jesus is going to unravel the great sin of history. He's going to unravel the great sin of the trial and the cross. He's going to unravel the great sin of envy and make his home with humanity once again, but this time forever. So that's what we see Jesus doing. I want to see, I just want to lay out our passage for you so you understand what Jesus is accomplishing at the trial. During his trial, Jesus is not simply along for the ride. He's not just taken prisoner and being told what to do. He is an active participant, although passive. He's not simply being dragged along. Jesus was fulfilling God's will, right? Remember back to the garden. How is Jesus fulfilling God's will? The first way he's doing that is what Kim read so well in verses 11 through 14. We can go to that slide. Jesus is demonstrating, first of all, how his kingdom interacts with this world. He's showing us something. How should we interact with the world? How does the kingdom of God interact with this world and the worldly powers? The second thing he's showing us is that he's condescending to the lowest place in the Roman world. The very lowest of the low in verses 15 to 23. And lastly, Jesus is actively unraveling the original sin of envy with the greatest act of love. Remember the garden just the night before. Remember Jesus' words, right? Not my will, Father, but your will be done. And now in the trial before the government, before religious leaders, before his enemies, even before the crowd, Jesus is embracing the will of God. And he's defeating the evil actions of men and of Satan. But he does it, right, in an odd and peculiar way, an unexpected way, a counterintuitive way, a way that we cannot think and even imagine. He does it so opposite to the, the way that we would have done it. Love undoes the evil of envy by disregarding violent power. And instead, he substitutes himself for us. Jesus is up against it. 
I was reminded when I was studying um, this passage uh, of, a, of a passage in um, Mere Christianity, which is a book by C.S. Lewis that really helped me come to faith. Um, and and I, I had the same realization about this text, how, how active the evil one is in the persecution of Christ and his beloved people. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote this, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe. Talk so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Jesus is not simply up against the crowds, the government, or the religious leaders. He's up against the dark power. And it's important for us to see this today as we, as we come into this well-studied and well-loved text. It's important to see that the enemy of good is at work in this passage. He is trying to manipulate and coerce. He is trying to enchant the hearts of men and lead them away from life. We know that voice. And in many ways, uh, the enemy accomplishes it. He does it in the religious leaders' hearts, right? Pilate could just see it on their faces. He knew that they had turned them over because of self-interest. He does it in the agreements of the crowd, where it's easier just to, to go along with the crowd than to defy the masses. And he does it in the mind of the government, playing political chess. The enemy is at work, and he's, he's against all that is good and beautiful and true. And there's so much that we could talk about today, but in order to bring some focus and, and help us along the way, help you follow me, help me stay planted, because like, honestly, we could go in so many directions. Um, I'd like to work through just three observations I've made of the text. Okay, so if you're taking notes on your phone or, or whatever um, just helps you follow, um, our, our three observations will be this. The first is that holy disregard is a nonviolent weapon. This is a nonviolent weapon that Jesus embraces, his holy disregard. Our second point is God becomes Barabbas. God becomes Barabbas. What did he just say? Yeah, God becomes Barabbas. The third point will be love unravels original sin. Love unravels this knot of original sin. My kids, uh, my daughter, she has a lot of hair ties. And, uh, and she ties them together. <laughs> she just takes them out of her hair and ties them together. And there's two kinds of people. People that throw the hair ties out and people that try and get the knot undone, right? And uh, I'm one of the people that tries to get the knot undone. And I was just seeing that, that the Lord in our sin unravels original sin. And he does it by using our failure. So let's go to number one. Holy disregard is a nonviolent weapon. When we first hear this passage read to us, when we first come and approach the passage, we are uh, taken back by what seems to be a lot of inaction by Jesus. It's a little shocking. Uh, it's almost like they're just letting him abuse him, letting, letting them abuse him. What happened uh, in this encounter? Why is Jesus so uh, meek? Why doesn't he act? What happened in his encounter with Pilate? Why doesn't he defend himself? If you have your Bible open, we'll just go to verse 11 or reread it for us. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? What's Jesus' reply? You have said so. Jesus replied, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asks him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But again, Jesus made no reply, not even, a, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus takes an alternate approach to his trial defense. Okay, have you ever been in a courtroom? Jesus, Jesus pleads the fifth. He doesn't say a lot. Uh, in truth, the if you just even think about the, the facts of the trial, just the conflicting testimony alone was enough for, the, for Pilate to throw the case out as a mistrial. Okay? But instead, Pilate listens to the charges. Why? He listens to the charges, and he's amazed that Jesus won't defend, him, won't defend himself. What, what is he amazed with? What does Pilate ask the Lord? Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate has a motivation here. He wants to understand, is this guy actually claiming to be a king? Is what these crazy people are accusing him of actually true? And Jesus answered Pilate in the same way that he answers other questions in the previous chapters. So if you were to go back just one chapter, you would say, uh, you would see Jesus answering Judas in the same way. You would see Jesus answering the chief priests in the same way. All you have said so. In Matthew 26, 25 and Matthew 26, 64, Jesus is actually being deliberate. He's saying things on purpose. He's not just getting taken for a ride. He's not, if he had not been fighting for his life, um, sorry, if he had been fighting for his life, he would have wanted to protest in a particular way, but he's not fighting for his life. He's laying down his life. And I think there's a lesson for us when we, under, when we understand the brief, when we understand the mission of God, when we understand the call of God on our lives, when we are doing what our Heavenly Father has asked us to do, when we are walking in our calling, we can, with holy disregard, received calling, vocation, a holy disregard, we can, with holy disregard, look past any power that comes against us. Jesus is able to look past the violent power of Rome, the manipulative power of the Sanhedrin, whether it be violent or otherwise. How, so so when, I was, when I was thinking about that, how, how can we be sure that we are not simply being indignant and unhelpful, that I'm just, <laughs> that I'm just you know, sticking to my guns and doing it my way? Only when we uh, are doing God's work not simply working for our own agendas. Because I'm sure the Sanhedrin thought that they were doing God's work. But were they? Uh, Martin Luther King wrote, Courageously confront evil uh, by the power of love, both morally and practically. As Jesus practiced his holy disregard, he used it as a nonviolent weapon to overcome his accusers. He used it as a nonviolent weapon to overcome his government. Uh, this way of interacting with the world's politic is confounding to our rivals and is perhaps the most powerful weapon that you have. Right? You think it's my, it's my money, it's my wit, it's my talent, it's my skill, it's my strength, it's our unity. But perhaps, perhaps our suffering is the most powerful weapon we have. 
Pilate is amazed with Jesus, his two-word response in verse 12, marks Jesus as the one who is doing exactly what he wants to do. Right? By answering this way, Jesus is affirming that he is the king. And that he's also much more than the king. <laughs> Think about this. If Jesus were to say, uh, yes, I am the king of the Jews, he would be just limiting his power to the king of the Jews. If he were to say, no, I'm not king of the Jews, then he would be saying that he's actually not king of the Jews. So by saying, it is as you say, he's being ambiguous and claiming much more than simply a kingship of the Jews. Proving he can also answer, he is showing his sanity. Jesus is doing a lot by answering the way that he did. He resigns himself to the will of God, not the judgment of Pilate or whoever else. In doing this, Jesus, Jesus actually passively defeats evil. I want to defeat evil in this world, but I often turn to activity, not passivity, right? I, Jesus does it passively. I think there may be a lesson for us to learn here. Love that undoes the evil disregards violent power and instead substitutes itself for us. In this case, love becomes Barabbas for us. <laughs> love becomes Barabbas for you, and for me, for the chief priests and elders. It's my second point. God becomes Barabbas. If you were to look back at our text, uh, it introduces a new character to this whole narrative of, of Jesus, a man also named Jesus Barabbas. I don't think that's an accident. In verse 15, I'll read it for us. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner. Some translations, yours might say, notorious prisoner. I think of notorious black, serious black, right? At that time, they had a notorious prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or the one who is called Jesus Messiah? As far as, as, far as we can understand, every single one of the Gospels talk about this, this thing taking place. So why does it take place? Why is, Jesus, why, is this, why is this even happening? Why is Pilate giving away a person? Why, does Pilate, why is that his reaction? Why does he go to, okay, I'm going to give a, a person away? Um, at Passover, Jerusalem, you, may, you might know this, but at Passover, Jerusalem is the biggest festival of the year. Jerusalem is swollen with people. People are leaking out the sides, camping outside. It's full. It's a very full city and politically, really, high risk for rioting. There's more pilgrims there than any other time of year, and the Romans know that. They know the story of the Passover, um, and, and really simply, it's a story of Israelites being freed from slavery. And so to really just practice virtue signaling, right, they say, hey, we'll release a prisoner on, on, on Passover, and maybe that'll quell the crowds. Maybe that'll calm them down, and we can maintain control. So they did this every year in an effort to virtue signal, uh, you know, placate the, the judges, things like that. So enter Jesus Parabas. Uh, he was a well-known prisoner, right? That's what your, your translation says in the NIV. Uh, like I said, some call him notorious. Some call him a terrorist. This was a bad dude. 
This was a, this was a tough dude. He, uh, we know from Mark that he was arrested because of a murder during a riot. He was arrested because of a murder during a riot. He's, he's a traitor for committing murder. And so Pilate is playing political chess. He sees Jesus coming. He sees this guy as innocent. He knows that he has this definitely not innocent guy. And so he wants to keep the, the felon. And so we'll come back to that. Pilate starts to play political chess. But first I want to ask, what is Pilate trying to accomplish by placing Jesus or the Jesuses uh, beside each other? What's Pilate trying to do? He's trying to release the innocent man, right? We can see that. He doesn't want to have any part in the innocent man's death. Uh, and he wants to also imprison the guilty person. He does want to keep Barabbas in jail. He knows, gosh, his wife knows, right? Everybody knows Jesus is innocent. Uh, it's interesting to note here along the wife. It's not just because my wife's in the room, but interesting. <laughs> the, the women in Matthew's account are always telling the truth. Right? Come on, somebody. The women, the women in Matthew's account are always telling the truth. The unnamed woman who anointed Jesus, the servant girl who challenges Peter, the woman at the cross and beside the tomb, and now Pilate's wife are all telling the truth that Jesus is an innocent man. So anyway, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. His wife believes him to be innocent. His accusers know that he's innocent. They can't even agree on an accusation. They're all, they're all having a mistrial. If only, if only Pilate, this is in his head, right? If only he could put them up beside one another and say, come on, let the innocent man go free, right? If only he could put them beside one another, the people would free the innocent party. But they don't. They don't. And so we'll get to, we'll get to the reason why in a moment. But this is what Matthew wants us to see. There's a key here. Matthew wants you to see Jesus' innocence. He wants, you to put, he wants you to put him up beside Barabbas. He wants you to see everybody claiming that's an innocent man. Innocent, innocent. Jesus was innocent, but crucified anyway. Jesus' innocence is the key to Matthew's meaning. Jesus dies in the place of the sinner. His great Passover action makes a way for Barabbas to be freed, makes a way for Barabbas to walk through to freedom. It's like N.T. Wright says, when Jesus dies, Barabbas goes free. When the innocent die, the guilty go free. God in Jesus Christ becomes Barabbas for his enemies. God in Jesus Christ becomes Barabbas for them. He takes the place of the sinner even though he's innocent. And this is something that requires more meditation for us. I'm not going to spend much more time. But to think, what does it mean that God became Barabbas? Jesus, the God-man, who would not only live a perfect life of sacrificial love, but he would give himself daily and then would die a death. An ugly death. Tim Keller describes the ugly nature of the cross saying this. Crucifixion was designed to be the most humiliating, gruesome method of execution. The Romans reserved it for their worst offenders. 
It was a protracted, bloody, public spectacle of extreme pain that usually ended in horrible death by shock or asphyxiation. Jesus not only took on the cross, but he identified with the lowest person. Jesus condescended to the lowest place in the Roman Empire. Why would he do that? This is the difference between Christian faith and every other faith that God would suffer. Christianity is the only religious faith that, faith that says that God himself actually suffers. That God himself knows what it means to suffer. That God cries out in suffering. Why? They would eventually see that they had been looking right at the greatest act of God's love. That God would suffer for us. That God came into the world and suffered and died on a cross in order to save us. It's the ultimate proof of God's love for you and for me. Christianity points to Christ's nonviolent action. Why would Jesus suffer? So that when you and me suffer, we have a God who knows. We have a God, we might be in complete, completely in the dark about why we're suffering. It make, it's absolutely senseless. It, makes no, it, has no, it seems no purpose to my suffering. It seems like there's no end to my suffering. How can I know what's going on? What, does it even matter? It may seem ridiculous that you are suffering. But the cross tells you that the reason cannot be that God doesn't love you. Whatever the reason may be, the cross shows you, God becoming Barabbas shows you that he identifies with you in your lowliest. God identifies with you at your lowest moment. Whatever the reason for your suffering is, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because he doesn't have plans for you. It can't be that God abandoned you. There's probably another reason. The cross proves that he loves you and understands what it means to suffer. It brings me to my last point, and it's this, that love unravels original sin. Do you remember when I said that uh, Pilate was playing at political chess? Okay, Pilate is playing this game of political chess, and he's putting up two two Jesuses beside each other. One is a political traitor and an insurrectionist and a murderer, and one is an innocent man who feeds the hungry and poor. So why is Pilate putting these two men up beside each other? Pilate is playing a game, and he gets burned. He, I don't think he thought that they would pick Barabbas. He gets burned. Why? I, I believe that Pilate underestimates the power that evil, or sorry, that envy has over the religious leaders. Think with me, okay? Pilate, seeing that Jesus was innocent, sees that he now has a card to play. He has a political move that he can make. By offering Jesus Barabbas beside Jesus Christ and asking the crowds to decide, he looks like a pretty good leader, right? You decide. Pilate would be able, number one, to release an innocent man. Number two, he would be able to retain a notorious felon, keep him off the streets. And number three, he'd be able to, to win the religious leaders, that he went with their deal, and it worked. All while maintaining his power and staying in the good graces of Rome. But Pilate makes an error, and what is his error? 
Pilate assumes something. He assumes that they will release Jesus because they underestimate, sorry, because he underestimates their self-interest. He underestimates their envy. And I believe this is where I want to just spend the rest of our time today. Look with me at the text again, if you have your Bible. Go to uh, verse 17. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest, self-interest that they had handed, him, handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I've suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. So this word translated self-interest in the NIV, I think is helpful, but also a little misleading. It's actually, uh, depending, depending on how well you understand, it's actually one of two times that this word's used in the New Testament. Um, and it is the Greek word for envy. Phthonos. So the PH makes an F sound. It's used only twice, and it differs from jealousy. Most simply, uh, jealousy would be, would be protecting something that you love, right? I'm jealous for my car. That's why I put an alarm on it, right? I don't want somebody to steal that. Envy, however, is resentment of another person's success, and often leads to the actions, uh, often leads to actions designed to undercut that success. Uh, listen to what Gregory of Nyssa wrote, uh, old church father wrote about envy. We have it on the screen there. He says, envy is the passion which causes evil, the father of death, the first entrance of sin, the root of wickedness, the birth of sorrow, the mother of misfortune, the basis of disobedience, the beginning of shame. Envy banished us from paradise, having become a serpent to oppose Eve. Envy walled us off from the tree of life, divested us of holy garments, and in shame led us away clothed with fig leaves. Envy killed the Lord. It was long ago, right, in the garden, where a man and a woman became envious of God and his knowledge of good and evil, wanting it so badly that, that they make an agreement with a lie, that they will not die. For in their envy, they believed if they were to die, it would have been worth it. And so the enemy enchants them with envy. And Adam and Eve want to be rid of their maker. And in our text, Jesus faces the same sin. We see the envy of the religious leaders. We can't help but see it, right? Everyone can see it. Everyone can see it. They're there first thing in the morning saying, we should crucify this guy. <laughs> Pilate can see it. And so we, we can't help but look down on the religious leaders. How could they be so cold-hearted to a philanthropist, to a humanitarian, to this person who's doing so much good? How could you be so cold-hearted to them? What's wrong with you religious leaders? But here's the truth about envy. It's that it distracts us from our purpose and calling. It distracted Adam and Eve Distracted the religious leaders. What are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be helping the people. But instead they're distracted. They're supposed to be leading the people to God, but somewhere in between their calling 
and their encounters with Jesus somewhere along the way. They, lo they lose sight of what it means to love others and they crave the popularity and the honor that Jesus received. So much so that they envy him and, and devise to kill him. And their plan is so good that they convince all other people to kill Jesus with him. Everyone could see their motives except themselves, even, even Pilate, right? The man most interested in self-interest. I was uh, reading an, an article about envy uh, this, this last week, and a guy named uh, Helmut Schoke, can't pronounce that name, but he says this, the envious man will confess to almost any other sin or emotional impulse before he will confess to his own envy. Why? Why is envy so difficult for us to confess? Maybe we aren't ready to admit that we too would be envious of Jesus. Uh, but I can prove it. Let me ask you, have you ever been envious of a person lesser than Jesus? Have you ever been envious of anyone? Well, maybe we shouldn't be so pious then to look down on the religious leaders. Of course, if we were, if Jesus was in our, if Jesus was in our arena, of course, if he was whatever you're doing. Of course, if he was a welder, a way better welder, and he got a job beside you, and he was the best welder ever, and he did it for less money, of course you would be envious. Of course, if Jesus came to this church and was the community groups and ethos pastor, of course I would be envious. <laughs> right? As soon as he comes into your arena, but he comes into the arena of the religious leaders, have you ever been envious? It's easier to see in other people than it is to see in ourselves, and it's easy to see in the religious leaders. So what makes us susceptible to envy? Envy that seeks to destroy our neighbor. This is the opposite of love, right? Uh, Pastor David's class on this is so, really so, so good. I know some of you guys uh, were there for it. And I think he was spot on when he said this. Envy is rooted in a hollow self. And this hollow, envious self tries to fill itself with others' failures. Right? It will destroy. It will destroy everything. Just to get more failure inside. Just to see other people fail a little bit more. And this is why they handed him over to be crucified. I've got a little bit of time here, so I want to go deeper on this idea. What does it mean that you or I may be envious? Let me read some symptoms of envy. Are you uh, sometimes offended at the talents and successes of other people? Right? Good fortune of other people. They get, they get a thousand dollar raise and, and you don't. Does that offend you? Have you experienced ongoing uh, selfish and unnecessary rivalry with another person. It's easy to see this in our kids, but do we see it in ourselves? Do you, uh, Schadenfreuden, right? Do you feel pleasure at other people's difficulties, misfortunes, or distress? Do you feel pleasure when other people fail? This is envy. 
Would you slander somebody? You can tell that you're envious of somebody when you, uh, I, I, love, I love David's example that he gave in his class was um, damning with faint praise. And I actually saw this in myself. That's why I want to read it to you. Is that I would, I would, I would go to someone and, and kind of give them a, a backhanded compliment. Have you ever received this? <laughs> Have you ever received a backhanded compliment? Somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, that was like, let's say, you're, let's say you're a music artist. You get off stage. Some guy comes up to you, says, man, that guitar line, wow, like, that was pretty good. What do you mean pretty good? <laughs> like, wasn't it good? No, it was, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Or, yeah, I liked it. You know, it was a lot better than last time. <laughs> or, or good job, you, you made it on time, way to go. And these ideas, faint praise. And this deep criticism that comes from envy rooted inside the person. Envy that desires to destroy our neighbor, that tries to fill itself up with other people's failures, is the envy that took Jesus to the cross. If you've experienced any of those symptoms I read, I think it would be helpful for you to and remember, this is the hardest thing to admit, right? That's what Gregory of Nyssa would say, the hardest thing to admit. So it does matter that we look into this, that we are all, that all of humanity is guilty of envy. When we start to see envy in others, we're on our way to seeing envy in ourselves. What does envy look like in others? Envy distracts you from purpose and calling. So the first, this is the first way I saw it in myself, is when I, I was no longer mission-minded, I was no longer about the love of Jesus and his people, I started thinking all about myself and my self-interest. I'll give you an example, and we'll move to communion. I want you to think of Narnia, okay? Uh, do you guys know the story Narnia? Anybody? I'm like reading it to my kids. I showed, I showed my kids uh, the BBC, the 1990 BBC thing on YouTube. There's like the full videos. You can go watch them. And, and my kids are like, what is going, what's wrong with that lion? <laughs> They're just like looking at these horrible costumes from the 90s. But anyway, um, there's, a, there's a moment in one of the recent movies. It's not as the same in the book, but the movie plays a lot on Edmund's envy of Peter. And the lion, which in the wardrobe. And Edmund is constantly envious of his brother. He agrees to lie to his siblings, to bring them into Narnia, right? He's going to lie. He talks to the witch. He, he's envious of this power. And he, and he agrees to lie to his siblings, to bring them into Narnia, so that he, may, he might rule over them. Um, he's caught in the lie that destroying his brother's, Peter's, natural leadership, that destroying Peter's natural leadership will fill Edmund's own emptiness. But Edmund, Ed, Edmund is as empty as the religious leaders. And you. And me. Even in cases like Edmund and the religious leaders, God finds a way to undo it. What's amazing about God is he's able to undo the power of envy. For many of us, it takes committing sin, listen closely, it takes committing sin for us to understand its worthless value. For so many of us, for so many of you today, it actually, the only time you believe that sin is worthless is once you know and have experienced its fruit. That you cannot gain what you, you cannot keep what you gain from sin. That it's, that it's writing checks that you can't cash. 
By convicting, sorry, by convincing the religious leaders to kill Christ, Satan was playing a shell game. You can't, you can't keep what you gain. And once you see the emptiness of this, then you're ready to come to him again. Once you see that, that by filling your empty self up with other people's failures only leads to more emptiness. It says, you and I behold Jesus who became Barabbas, that our envy melts away. What does that mean? Why does my envy melt away? Because it is not by other people's failures, but by me and you knowing that I am deeply and profoundly loved by Jesus. That when my worth is not based on a bankrupt idea of who I am, but my worth is based on an event that happened on the cross, it's only then that I can overcome this envy. It's only then that I'm filled with real worth and real value. But it's even in our sin that God would show us as we're wandering, he points us back to him. Even the deepest envy that preferred Barabbas and crucified Christ even that God can use to bring a deeper forgiveness, which invokes a deeper love. We can say that we would have preferred Barabbas. We can say that we are envious and that God could use even my envy, even your envy of other people, to demonstrate his love to you. And that's what he did on the cross. When Jesus dies, Barabbas goes free. Because he died, I go free. Because he died, you can go free. We're going to move into a time of communion here. Uh, so servers, you guys can come and get ready. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what it means that Jesus gives us a new self. <laughs> totally loved and totally new. That you are no longer building your identity, your person, and yourself on a bottomless pit of self-interest and envy. You are building yourself. You're building who you are and becoming fully who you are based on what Jesus says about you. Based on who Jesus says you are. That he became Barabbas so that you would no longer need to envy others. That he became Barabbas so that you could be filled with him. That he died on the cross so that you might know what real love is. Where in all the world is God's love most poignant? On the cross. This is where we feel our affirmation. This is where we know who Jesus is. On the night when Jesus was going to be betrayed, after supper, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. As often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, after supper, he took the cup, and it was filled with wine. And he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, of the new promise, of the new life, of your new identity in me. If you drink this cup and eat this bread and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, you will be with me in paradise. This is what Jesus teaches to us as we approach the table. As we bring to him our envy and our need, our brokenness. As we're honest that, yes, Lord, we would have preferred Barabbas. And yet you will use that to teach me a deeper forgiveness. Yet you'll teach me more about your love 
what I am in you. So I want to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that um, even, even in our envy, uh, you can find a way to undo this knot. You can find a way to undo our sin and make it right that you would uh, counterintuitively become Barabbas for us, that you would move in such a way that we would know love and peace forever. Lord, that we could always be with you. Father, as we come to the table today, uh, remind us of our real worth, our real value, that we don't have to look to other people and envy what they have or who they are, that we can find true wholeness and life in you. Lord, we thank you for this new promise, this new covenant, this new life. Uh, we take it and eat it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to give us some uh, instructions as we come. Um, if you haven't been here before, uh, what we're, what's going to happen as we receive communion together? Uh, first of all, communion is coming together in union with God. It's Christians reminding themselves uh, regularly that we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. And so as we come to the table, the prerequisite for that is, is simply that, that you call Jesus Savior and Lord. So his table's open. It's open for, for anyone who would call him Savior and Lord. Um, if that's not you, if you're not there yet, that's okay. You don't need to come forward. However, I would say if you have never received communion before and you, you, have, you have believed, uh, celebrate that today and come forward and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. The way that we are going to facilitate that um, is there is a method to this. So I want to make sure I get it right. Brad, feel free to correct me. What's going to happen is we're going to come down the sides as we're all seated here, come down the sides of the, of the um, scaffolding. I don't know what to call it. And then out, and then out, out the back, okay? Out the back near the wall to the side. And we have stairs that go back up to your seats. Awesome. Very cool. All right, well, let me, let me pray, and uh, oh, yeah, I'll say this. Uh, please, as you, as you receive the, the bread and the cup, just take it back to your seat, and we'll receive it together, okay? Father, thank you for your word today. Uh, Lord, uh, we do come humbly to this table. Uh, we're in awe of your ability to um, be meek and mild and so nonviolent and yet overcome, we are um, blown away that you would become Barabbas for us. Lord, in our envy and where we identify with Pilate and the crowd and the judges, the rulers of the people, where we have envied others, Lord, we come today um, in humility, saying we need you. Uh, we need to be new only in you. Restore us, Lord. Redeem us. Uh, help us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.